The concept of equal opportunity in America has always been wrapped somewhat around the idea that uh, immigrants to our country will all be welcomed on a fair basis. But from the beginning, the Constitution, as interpreted by the United States Supreme Court, has tolerated so many instances in which that opportunity has been compromised by bias and by discrimination. That, of course, includes recently when the court held that President Donald Trump's travel ban, which absolutely seemed aimed at people of particular religious beliefs, did not exceed his authority. So the question is, do immigrants to this country enjoy the same equal protection as other Americans? And should they? That's where we begin the conversation today as a continuation of our WDET book club this summer when we are talking about the U.S. Constitution, the ways it shapes modern life in America and the ways in which it is influenced by and has influenced the notions of equality and inequality uh, in our country. And we've got two really wonderful uh Wonderful guests here, uh, experts to help us sort through how immigration uh, plays out in the context of the U.S. Constitution. Christina Rodriguez is a professor of law at Yale Law School, and uh, her expertise includes constitutional law and theory and immigration law and policy. She's also author of the book, The President and Immigration Law. Christina Rodriguez, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me. Yes. And also with us is uh, Ilya Soman, who is a professor of law at George Mason University. His expertise includes constitutional law and immigration rights. Uh, he's author of the book Free to Move, Foot Voting, Migration, and Political Freedom. Uh, Ilya Soman, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So I'm going to start here. Uh, we're, I would love to have both of you address how the U.S. Constitution addresses immigration and how its framing of this issue has kind of cast forward uh, as we've gotten into uh, the, the life of this country and the various controversies uh, that have arisen over time. Uh, Professor Rodriguez, I am going to start with you. The Constitution itself says very little about immigration. It does give Congress the power to adopt a uniform rule of naturalization, which is the path to citizenship. So those who wrote it clearly contemplated that there would be immigration, but that is the only place where you see that expressly identified. Today, the thought is that Congress's power to regulate immigration could come from any number of parts of the Constitution, the power to regulate international foreign commerce, the power to regulate interstate commerce. The Supreme Court has also found it to be a power that is effectively inherent in the idea of a nation. A nation has to be able to control its borders to remain sovereign. And, and so in that sense, the power of Congress to regulate is relatively uncontroversial today. Most of the constitutional controversy has moved to uh, the extent to which the Constitution might limit what Congress and the executive or the states, for that matter, do in their efforts to regulate immigration and the lives of immigrants. And, and that's where the Fifth Amendment Due Process Clause and the Fourteenth Amendment Protections for Due Process and Equal Protection come into play. And, and a lot of the 
ferment revolves around how to interpret those provisions. Hmm. Uh, Professor Soman, I wonder what uh, your take is on uh, the Constitution and immigration. Yeah. I largely agree with what Christina just said, but I would add that uh, it's notable that the, nowhere in the Constitution is there listed any general power of the federal government to restrict immigration, uh, even though the Constitution enumerates all sorts of other less significant powers. Uh, so many of the founding fathers, including James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, actually argued that the federal government did not have any general power to restrict immigration. And this was actually the dominant view held by people in the first several decades, at least after the establishment of the Constitution. And it was only in 1889 in the Chinese exclusion cases that the Supreme Court ruled that there was actually a power to restrict immigration. Uh, and that shift in thinking was in large part the result of a rise in bigotry against Chinese and other Asian immigrants, uh, thus leading to the Chinese Exclusion Acts, which uh, the court upheld. So it's true today we take for granted uh, that Congress has the power to restrict immigration and that the president has a lot of power in this area, too. Uh, but it's not at all clear that this is actually true, at least according to the original meaning of the Constitution uh, and the shift in opinion, which led people to take for granted that it's true, had a great deal to do with racism uh, in the late 19th century. Mm. So so I want to uh, go back just a bit to the founding itself and the conversations that the founders were having about the new nation they were building and uh, the constitution that they were designing to govern uh, that nation, how much of what they were discussing uh, was about who could be an American and who couldn't be an American, which is really, I think, the fundamental question when you're talking about uh, immigration. And I think uh, going back to that point and talking about uh, what they thought about those things uh, helps us understand the history of uh, immigration in the country and and the ways in which inequality, the same inequality that frames so much of the rest of uh, the Constitution and, and the forming of the nation, uh, has really influenced uh, that, that, uh, that idea of who gets to be an American why uh, and and who doesn't? Uh, Professor Rodriguez, uh, talk about what uh, many of the founders believed about uh, the idea of who should be able to, to to be a newcomer to the new nation. So there are a number of different ways of looking at that question. The one of the earliest constitutional controversies was over the Alien and Sedition Acts. Mm-hmm that um, were designed to enable uh, the Federalists to crack down on their political opponents, but also contained a law that authorized the president to expel uh, any immigrant he deemed a threat to public safety or or to the nation. It was an enormously controversial law, both James Madison and and Thomas Jefferson and many others thought that it was a violation of the separation of powers, that there was no such power to delegate to the president. It was motivated by a concern that uh, French immigrants in particular were threats to the political power of the the Federalist Party. They sympathized with Thomas Jefferson, and so immigration from the very beginning was used as a political tool to try to prevent people who uh, were thought not to be fully loyal to the United States from uh, remaining in the country. There were also restrictions placed on naturalization. The 
length of time it took to naturalize during that period was extended to 12 years, uh, which was a way of trying to prevent uh, immigrants from becoming voters, particularly uh, those who were thought to be threats. The other way of looking at this question from the, the early period of American history is that a lot of the regulation of migration occurred indirectly through decisions that the states made about who they wanted to attract to their territory and who they essentially wanted to kick out. So there was a lot of variation in the kinds of immigrants that different parts of the country thought uh, were desirable or not desirable. So in what is now the Midwest, in the antebellum period, the period before the Civil War, there were state laws that sought to attract immigrants, uh, land grants and guarantees of even voting, um, and efforts to make it attractive so that uh, immigrants were mostly coming from Europe uh, at the time would come to the Midwest to settle it. Uh, those were predominantly German immigrants. But on the eastern seaboard, which at this period um, was relatively developed compared to the West, there was a lot of uh, resentment and hostility towards the, the migrants who were coming in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s, primarily to the Irish, who were perceived as poor, uh, who were poor and were, were perceived as brains on the, the public interest um, in the public fisc. And so there were states, including New York and Massachusetts, that tried to adopt their own deportation laws as a way of keeping the Irish in particular out because they were seen to be uh, either unassimilable or drained on the system. And so the early history and practice of uh, whether immigrants were welcomed or not was, was quite varied and had a lot to do with the development needs of the different parts of, of the country. Hmm. Uh, Professor Soman, are, are we wrong to ascribe to, I guess, the early America uh, even the idea of equality when it comes to something like uh, immigration, the same way we might be uh, wrong to, to ascribe too much uh, to, to, to early America in terms of equality in, in, in other realms. In other words, uh, does, does immigration, I guess, fall prey to the same kinds of uh, shortcomings when we think of equality that, that, that other provisions of the Constitution did? So I think uh, in this area, as in a number of others, the Founding Fathers outline very strong and idealistic principles of equality that weren't always lived up to. So uh, George Washington, for instance, said that the United States should be an asylum for the poor and oppressed of all nations and religions. Thomas Jefferson, Madison, James Wilson, and other founders said similar things. Uh, and obviously those principles weren't always adhered to. There was the Alien Act of 1798, which Christina mentioned, though it's worth noting that Madison and Jefferson and many others resisted it, argued that it was unconstitutional, and eventually it was allowed to expire without a single person uh, ever actually being deported under it. Uh, and obviously, as Christina also mentioned, there were some exclusionary uh, rules adopted by state governments. Indeed, for the first hundred years of American history, most immigration restrictions uh, were almost entirely by the states rather than by the federal government. Uh, there certainly also, of course, was uh, various kinds of bigotry against immigrants, Irish immigrants, German immigrants, uh, later, of course, uh, even more so Chinese and other Asian immigrants. 
At the same time, however, it's also remarkable that until the 1870s and 1880s, there were very few uh, federal government barriers to immigration. And although there were some set up by the states, those who were not welcome in some states had the option of going to others. Uh, so in that respect, there was tremendous equality and opportunity. And in some ways, the performance of the early republic in this area was actually better than ours today. Uh, they didn't have horrible immigration detention and deportation systems like we did today. Uh, they didn't turn away refugees fleeing horrendous oppression. They didn't have many of the other practices we have today. So uh, I think there's a lot of areas uh, where there has been moral progress in the United States since the founding era, uh, the area of slavery, racial equality, gender equality, and so on. In the area of openness to immigration, we are actually today worse than they were. Hmm. So, so, Professor Soman, uh, you wrote, in fact, in 2019 in The Atlantic that our immigration laws defy the Constitution and that immigration restrictions have been held to a far lower constitutional standard compared with almost any other exercise of, uh, of, of government power. I'll give you a chance to talk a little more about why you think that's so. And you've given some great examples already of, uh, of things that are tolerated today uh, that would not have even been tolerated uh, in the early republic in terms of um, inequality uh, in the enforcement of, of immigration. But, but I guess what has brought us to this, to this point? It's been a, a long history, although a lot of it going back to the late 19th century, when, as I said before, the Supreme Court first ruled uh, that the federal government had a power to enact immigration restrictions. Uh, that in itself was a departure from the way other aspects of federal power were analyzed in that in other areas, the court was generally reluctant, especially in that era, to ascribe to the federal government vast powers that were never anywhere specifically listed in the Constitution. Uh, also, during that same period, the Supreme Court began the adoption of what uh, legal scholars called the plenary power doctrine, which is the idea that not only does Congress have the power to exclude immigrants, but its power is largely exempt from other constitutional constraints uh, that apply to most other exercises of federal power, such as the need to respect due process, the need to avoid uh, various kinds of discrimination, like discrimination on the basis of race, or religion, or freedom of speech, uh, and so on. Uh, and that doctrine exists, at least to a considerable extent, in the Supreme Court's precedents even today. The most recent major example, uh, you actually already mentioned, the 2018 travel ban decision, where even though Donald Trump, the uh, president at the time, had repeatedly said that the immigration restrictions that he had imposed on uh, near total entry ban on uh, citizens of several Muslim majority nations. He had repeatedly said that the purpose of that was to target Muslims. Still, the Supreme Court chose to uphold it against the challenge, uh, arguing that this was discrimination based on religion, and they upheld it specifically because of the double standard that is applied to immigration policy. If something similar had happened in almost any other area of policy, it would have said, well, this is clearly discrimination on the basis of religion, and we strike it down. Indeed, just a couple weeks uh, before the travel ban decision, they issued their decision in Masterpiece Cake Shop, which was about discrimination on the basis of religion uh, in the state of Colorado. And there, 
uh, there was considerably less evidence of discriminatory motivation in the travel ban case, but the Supreme Court in a 7-2 ruling nonetheless said there's discrimination here, has to be struck down, uh, whereas in the immigration case, they treated it very differently precisely because it is immigration, and this is just one of a large number of areas where immigration policy, in effect, gets a free pass or almost a free pass uh, from normal constitutional scrutiny by the courts. Mm. Hmm. Uh, Professor Rodriguez, in your book, uh, The President and Immigration Law, you explain that there are a lot of separation of power questions at play when it comes to policing immigration. And you ask and explore the question of how immigration authority is distributed between the political branches. Uh, What are the biggest takeaways from your examination of that question? And how have those questions played out in real life? So in the book by co-author Adam Cox and I broached the question of how can we explain why the president seems to exercise so much power over the shape of immigration law when Supreme Court opinion after Supreme Court opinion refers to the power to regulate immigration as being something that belongs to Congress. And the gist of the conclusion is that over the course of the 20th century, Congress and the executive together have created a massive deportation system. Ilya alluded to this before, something that didn't really exist in the 19th century uh, began to be built with the Chinese Exclusion Act. And over the course of the the 20th century, Congress enacted more and more laws that made people deportable and uh, funded uh, vast bureaucracy to make deportation actually happen. It's one thing to have legal authority to deport someone, but you also need uh, the personnel and the resources to uh, effectuate deportation. And that's something that um, was done in earnest over the course of the 20th century. Uh, That machinery in the beginning of the 1970s, but through the late 20th century, the beginning of the 21st, collided with massive illegal immigration, uh, mostly from Mexico, but from all over the world, uh, which resulted in the presence in the United States of a population of almost 12 million deportable non-citizens. So even with the vast deportation machinery that the president presides over, it was no longer possible to remove everyone who was removable under the law. Um, And yet there was incredible pressure to do so. The same political economy that led to the rise of this deportation system also uh, has resulted in an enforcement orientation to the immigration laws. But the consequence of all of these developments is that the executive branch and who's in charge in the White House has a lot to do with the shape of immigration policy. And it's the uh, executive officials who work with the president who decide who gets to stay and who must be removed. And, and this is the origin story, in a sense, of the DACA policy. Mm. Um, where the Obama administration decided that this large group of non-citizens without status, people who were brought to the country when they were minors, who are functionally American and ought to be allowed to remain, should not be deported. And through the power to control the enforcement system, DACA was created. Of course, DACA has provoked a lot of legal controversy. I happen to believe it's fully legal and consistent with the kind of authority the system grants the president, but it only underscores uh, how important uh, who controls the presidency is to the shape of immigration policy. And there are numerous examples of this throughout uh, the post-World War II period. Um, 
and that continue to, to appear on the headlines uh, as we speak. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to continue this conversation about immigration, immigration policy, and equality, how it all fits into uh, the history and the president of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, if you would like to join the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, do you think America should be more or less restrictive when it comes to immigration? How important do you think immigration is to our identity as a nation? And are we living up to the ideal of being one of the most welcoming countries in the world? Or do you think we've become hostile to people from other nations who want to build a new life here? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter, put comments there, and we'll try to work you into the show that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're continuing our WDET book club discussions about the U.S. Constitution how it influences modern American life, and how it both shapes and frames our notions of equality and inequality uh, in our nation. Uh, Today we're talking about immigration, uh, both as it is uh, framed by the U.S. Constitution and as it has unfolded uh, over the life of the country. Uh, How fair is it uh, to try to... uh, Decide, de- determine uh, who should be an American and who shouldn't. Uh, how how much does equality uh, influence those decisions uh, in our country? Uh, we, of course, want to hear from you uh, about what you think. Uh, can America be America, really is the question, uh, if it is not welcoming to people from other countries? Is that a fundamental part of the very idea of America. And uh, if we're not living up uh, to that ideal, how do we? Uh, What would be a framework that would seem fairer and more equal uh, to determine who is allowed to not only come to our country, but to become an American? Uh, We want to hear what you think about uh, current immigration policy. Uh, Do you think that we're living up to that ideal uh, that was set out uh, for uh, this country to be one of the most welcoming nations on the planet? Uh, or do you think we're falling short? Or do you think we're uh, allowing politics uh, to interfere with the question of who should be an American or not? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to uh, the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Uh, or uh, you can uh, hashtag us on Twitter. And we'll include you in the conversation. We've got two great experts with us uh, this hour to help frame this 
conversation. Uh, Christina Rodriguez is a professor of law at Yale Law School. Her expertise includes constitutional law and theory and immigration law and policy. She's author of the book, The President and Immigration Law. Uh, also with us is uh, Elia Soman, who is a professor of law at George Mason University. And his expertise includes constitutional law and migration rights. Uh, he's author of the book, Freedom Move, Foot Voting, Migration and uh, Political Freedom. Uh, I, I want to start this uh, part of the conversation here with that question I just asked our listeners, which is, uh, can America be America without uh, being a welcoming uh, place for uh, for newcomers? And uh, I think the, the, the sort of natural extension of that question is, what would an immigration policy look like that was more welcoming? What would the framework be for uh, a set of policies that uh, brought us closer to that ideal uh, that many of the founders had about what America uh, would be? Uh, Professor Soman, I'll, I'll start with you. So there's many things that we can do to bring us closer and live up to the ideal more fully. Uh, I think the ultimate goal, which I don't think is going to be achieved anytime soon, is to shift the current system where there's a presumption that migrants are kept out unless there's a specific law saying that they're let in, uh, and shift it to the opposite presumption, which is that people should be allowed free entry unless there's some compelling evidence that they pose some sort of a threat, uh, such as that they're planning to commit acts of terrorism or espionage or the like. Uh, short of that, uh, we can at the very least subject immigration restrictions to the same constitutional constraints that apply to virtually every other exercise of government power. Uh, for example, we should impose on that the same sort of restrictions that apply to other severe deprivations of liberty. That way we end such travesties as, for example, toddlers, quote-unquote, representing themselves in immigration detention pr uh, proceedings uh, because they're not given any uh, right to counsel. Uh, we should make clear that restrictions on racial, religious, ethnic and other kinds of discrimination uh, that are forbidden in other areas of government policy are also forbidden when it comes to immigration policy. Uh, similarly, that we cannot deport people or keep them out uh, because the government disapproves of their speech uh, and the like, which currently there are laws on the books which allow deportation or exclusion on that basis. Uh, and uh, you know, there's a lot of other steps of that kind that we can take. Uh, and finally, even if we don't adopt a general uh, presumption of freedom of movement, uh, we can liberalize immigration policy so as to make legal entry easier on a lot of fronts. Uh, the main reason why we have an issue with illegal migration is because for the vast majority of the people who migrate illegally, it's simply not possible to enter any other way. So a vast illegal market naturally develops, just like the illegal market for uh, alcohol when we had alcohol prohibition in the 1920s and early 1930s. Uh, and if we make it easier for people who want to uh, work and live here to enter, uh, that would uh, eliminate most of the illegal immigration problem, and it would also make our economy vastly more productive. Mm. Uh, and we would save a lot of money on immigration enforcement as well. Mm. Uh, Professor Rodriguez, I wonder if you can talk a little about this idea of fairness uh, with regard to immigration and what that 
what that looks like. What does that mean? Uh, and and how far, I guess, are we right now from having uh, an immigration policy that reflects the kind of fairness that uh, perhaps many of the founders expected? That's a really big and difficult concept to <laughs> unpack. Mm-hmm. I think in a very general sense, the United States and the system we have today is welcoming to immigrants in that more than a million non-citizens enter the country every year um, to become residents of, of the United States. And there are a number of different kinds of channels through which people may enter, including uh, an asylum and refugee system that the current administration is trying mightily to revive um, after it was uh, decimated by their predecessors. But there are also countless pockets of unfairness and arbitrariness in the system. Uh, one of them uh, is uh, something uh, to which Ilya just alluded, which is that there are very prescribed ways in which people can enter the United States. Someone who wants to come here has to have either a family connection uh, or um, fit into an employment category for which there are not nearly enough visas um, or uh, be able to meet the, the exacting requirements of the asylum and refugee laws, which only apply to a limited number of people who are fleeing disaster or harm or violence or persecution from their countries of origin. So, uh, Expanding the paths by which people might enter uh, could make the system less arbitrary in the way that it selects people from uh, other parts of the world. Our deportation system is also full of um, provisions that you might describe as unfair. So one of the ways to make this system both more fair and more humane and closer to the ideal that you're invoking is by radically restructuring our deportation laws, including by reducing the number of offenses, including very minor offenses that today would constitute grounds for removal, reintroducing something like a statute of limitations that once you've become a permanent resident of the United States, there's only a short period in which you become eligible for deportation. And you know, beyond that, the idea of upgrading you from the country where you might have your family your livelihood and all of your personal ties because of a criminal offense uh, seems uh, earth-shattering and and arguably inappropriate unless the offense is truly severe. Um, It's also vital that the immigration system be more adaptable than it is now. Um, Among the many reasons why the United States in the late 20th century developed uh, this large uh, illegal population is because of the inability of the system to adapt to the changing nature of migration flows, to changing labor market demands, and to changing interconnections between people in the United States and people elsewhere, and the inability to accommodate uh, mixed-status families, U.S. citizens who have uh, relations who don't have legal status. And that adaptation, as um, Adam and I argue in our book, is something that we think requires actually involving the executive branch more by giving the president and executive agencies more power to look at the situation in the world and adapt the law to accommodate uh, disasters in one place or um, the the needs of the the labor market of the United States in another or 
foreign policy considerations. And there are a lot of tools in the immigration law that have uh, emerged precisely to fill those objectives, but they're not nearly good enough. And the result is a lot of people who ought to be accommodated in some way or another uh, left out. Mm. So, uh, Christina, you say that Congress could address some of these issues by formally delegating power to the president to adjust these quotas and admissions criteria. Uh, Talk about uh, what that would achieve and what the potential pitfalls, I guess, are of something like that. And are there some things that we should be concerned about, I guess, with that kind of that kind of uh, a power? Um, But I, I think I I think. It's a particularly interesting question to consider, given the, the the very dramatic transition that we've just had from President Trump, which you've noted, uh, to President Biden. Uh, talk just a little about that idea of yours. So the the numbers and uh, quotas that govern who can enter the United States are set by statute by Congress. And they really have changed very little in the last 30 to 40 years. And that has a lot to do with the complex and pitched politics surrounding immigration. It's extraordinarily difficult to enact immigration legislation, uh, even when there's a lot of widespread support for it. I think the Congress's inability for example, to enact the DREAM Act, it would give status to those who are eligible for DACA that was widely supported, still has not succeeded in becoming legislation. And that contributes in part to a system that does not have the capacity to adapt to what's happening in the world around it, to address um, refugee outflows, sudden crises, and uh, shifts in the labor market. And the idea is that if you give some of that power to adjust the quotas for the numbers of immigrants who can enter the United States each year to reflect those kinds of changes, that that would lead to a a system that better matched the needs of the country as well as uh, the pressures on its borders. All all of this, of course, exists within a context of uh, assuming that we need numerical quotas and the like, but that's been the way... Uh, U.S. immigration law has been structured since the early 20th century. Mm. The, the pitfalls, um, I think you can see in the way that the Trump administration effectively undid refugee resettlement. That is one pocket where Congress has delegated power to the president to set the numbers of people who enter each year. In the Refugee Act of 1980, Congress gave the president the authority to set the numbers of refugees who could be admitted. And the Trump administration uh, reduced that number to near zero. Uh, And so that has led to a a rethinking of whether certain baselines need to be established, that we have as a country a basic commitment to a certain amount of, say, refugee resettlement. And then beyond that, the president has the power to adapt upwards and to admit more if there are larger refugee crises than the baseline numbers would allow the system to accommodate. And and so as with any system or regulatory model where you delegate power to the president, if you have a president that is hostile to the goals of the underlying statute, then that can wreak havoc on the system. But that's not enough of a reason not to try to design uh, a better system than the one that we have now that 
um, is incapable of reflecting and channeling the needs of a 21st century economy in an interconnected world. Mm. Uh, Professor Soman, I wonder what you make of this proposal that Congress could delegate these powers to the president to adjust quota and admissions uh, criteria. Is that is that a uh, a potential fix for some of the problems that we see in immigration? So I sympathize with Christina's objectives in advocating this sort of system, uh, but I have more reservations than she does uh, that the best solution is to uh, give more discretion to the president, and I think that's true for two reasons. One is, as Christina herself alluded, if you get a president, as of course we just had, who is deeply hostile to immigration, if he has the power to adjust quotas and, and other immigration restrictions, uh, then he could use that power to severely restrict immigration, impose various injustices, and so forth. Uh, a second, more practical problem is that even the best-intentioned uh, person uh, in the White House, still, I'm skeptical that any government can do a good job of trying to plan what is the right level of labor supply or what sorts of skills we should have in the economy. Instead of trying to centrally plan that, it's better to leave that up to market competition. Uh, if central planning of labor supply was a really great idea, the Soviet Union would have been a great success, and it clearly wasn't because actually governments are very bad uh, at planning these things. And then third, I think delegating so much power to one man or one woman in the White House is, I think, inimical to the idea of the rule of law, that if you have one person who gets to decide whether millions of people uh, are going to have access to freedom and opportunity, or whether instead they're going to be kept out or deported uh, or condemned to poverty for the rest of their lives, not only is that unfair and, and, and unjust, but it's also inimical to the idea of the rule of law, where uh, at least important issues related to people's liberty and fundamental rights should be decided by uh, laws that everybody is supposed to obey that are known in advance rather than by the will of one person who often make those decisions based on short-term political calculations. I don't think we can eliminate all executive discretion either from this area of policy or most others, but I think we should at least reduce the vast amount of discretion that currently exists uh, where one person based on their uh, political calculations literally holds the fate of millions of people in their hands. Uh, I think that's deeply at odds with the rule of law, uh, and uh, Congress and the courts should work to cut back on that. Hmm. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue this conversation about uh, immigration and the Constitution. Uh, we'll want to hear from you as well on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. Call and tell us what you think of our immigration policies. Uh, do they live up to our ideals as a nation? Uh, and if you think we're not, what do you think we should do? How should we be approaching uh, questions of who gets to be an American and who does not? As always, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter for comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the show that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. The 
This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're continuing our WDET book club discussions about the U.S. Constitution with a look today at uh, immigration and the way it uh, plays out in our country today, the way it has historically played out uh, in our country, whether we're living up to those ideals of being one of the most welcoming nations uh, on the planet. Uh, we'd love to hear from you uh, during the conversation. What do you think of our immigration policies? Do you think they are rendered the way they should be and that uh, it maybe should be difficult in many cases to become uh, an American? Uh, or do you worry that uh, we are still hanging on to uh, policies and practices that prevent people from becoming Americans on the basis of race or religion or other things that they really shouldn't have an influence uh, over whether you're allowed to become an American or not. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll try to work you uh, into the into the conversation. Um, we've got two great uh, experts with us uh, this hour Christina Rodriguez is a professor of law at Yale Law School. Uh, she's an expert in constitutional law and theory and immigration law and policy. She's also author of the book, The President and Immigration Law. Uh, also with us is Ilya Soman. He's a professor of law at George Mason University, and he's an expert in constitutional law and migration rights, author of the book, Free to Move, Foot Voting, Migration, and uh, Political Freedom. Uh, I, I want to start uh, this part of the conversation here with with a question about uh, the political establishment and the current political system. Uh, it, it has uh, stalled for many years now over the question of reforming immigration in a large sense. Uh, we've been deadlocked in Congress uh, for almost a few decades uh, over the question of, of how to do this. But uh, is the current system capable of dealing with uh, these immigration questions in a large way? Uh, is Congress uh, the wrong place, I guess, to, to, to think about where these kinds, of, uh, these kinds of questions can be resolved given uh, the current politics. Um, Professor Soman, I'll start with you this time. I think, obviously, both on this issue and on a lot of other issues, there's deep polarization in Congress and in our political system more generally. I think that's pretty obvious. Anybody who follows politics uh, knows that that is the case. At the same time, there are a number of reforms that actually do enjoy a considerable degree of bipartisan and public support, which could be enacted. Christina mentioned one of them, uh, legalizing DACA and uh, taking those uh, several hundred thousand people or more and legalizing their status so it no longer depends on the whims of the president. Another area where there's a great deal of agreement is uh, making various kinds of high-skill immigration easier. Uh, that uh, uh, could be expanded. Uh, I think there's also a lot of agreement, certainly not universal, but there is a great deal uh, on letting in refugees who are threatened with serious suppression in their countries of origin. We saw that uh, just now, an example of that, with the uh, widespread willingness, including among many Republicans, to welcome Afghan refugees and those who uh, helped support uh, the U.S. effort there and as a result now are threatened with oppression and persecution by the Taliban. Uh, I think also... 
there's uh, ways in which the courts and the executive could uh, eliminate some of the shameful abuses that exist in the detention and deportation system. Uh, I think some elements on the more extreme right would be against doing that, but I think uh, there could be at least a lot of support in majority public opinion uh, for doing that as well. Uh, so I think there are some things which are extremely difficult, and there are some abuses uh, and injustices which is going to take a long time to get rid of uh, if we ever do. Uh, but there's also a lot of low-hanging fruit in immigration policy, which Congress, uh, the courts, and the executive could address and enjoy broad public support in doing so uh, if they were willing to try. Hmm. Uh, I think also uh, there may be some reason to hope that uh, the courts will uh, take a slightly less hands-off attitude, at least on some issues. Uh, just last fall, actually, a court uh, struck down uh, some of Donald Trump's uh, late in his administration, his severe restrictions on employment visas on the grounds that the administration's interpretation of the law in question gave the executive so much power that it would violate constitutional principles mm -hmm. against uh, the delegation of congressional power to the executive. Uh, and I think similar principles uh, could apply against some of the more extreme immigration restrictions imposed by the executive in other areas, including right now perpetuated by the Biden administration uh, with respect to so-called Title 42 expulsions at the border, uh, which expel many hundreds of thousands of people on the pretext of combating the COVID pandemic. Uh, so there's a lot that could be done. There's also are very serious political obstacles as well. Uh, Professor Rodriguez, we've got about uh, two minutes left. I wonder what you make of uh, sort of alternative approaches to immigration reform here in Michigan, for instance, we had a governor recently who uh, decided that he was going to do things a little differently uh, on his own and not wait uh, for Congress. Is that the solution uh, going forward? I do think that actors in states, governors, mayors, advocacy organizations at the local level who see the benefits from immigration are critical voices in the immigration debate. And those kinds of actors have always been helping to set the agenda, both in a manner that calls for more and fairer immigration and more humane immigration policy, but also in the restrictionist sense. Um, and so empowering local lawmakers without consideration of what the end goal might be could backfire. Uh, but it is critical for those who do the, the work of integration on the ground and who are trying to build communities and understand how vital immigrants are in, in many of those communities to, to be proposing bold initiatives. And there are other models in the world, uh, Canada, for example, where uh, the provinces have a role to play in helping to define what the needs are at a moment in time, and that shapes the immigration policy at a given moment in time. I, I would say on the larger political question, though, um, I'm less optimistic than it sounds like Ilya might be about the future, even though I think there are a number of immigration reform proposals that do have wide popularity, including legalization mm -hmm. of the boomers and, and larger populations. And that's because the, the politics of immigration seems to have shifted a bit, whereas uh, for much of the late 20th century, even the first decade of this one, 
immigration divided both parties, and you had people in both parties for different reasons, supportive of both legalization programs mm-hmm. and uh, reduction in the deportation system. Now, polarization has meant that the Republican Party in particular depends on immigration restriction, which, yes. given the way the Senate and um, the presidency are, are structured, makes the prospects for reform uh, somewhat bleak. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Professor Christina Rodriguez and Professor Elias Oman. It was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow, and we're going to talk with author John U. Bacon about his new book, Let Them Lead. This is 1019 WDETFM.